Let's turn to Romans chapter 11. We have two more sermons. At least if things go the way I'm planning. And y'all know sometimes that don't happen. Currently, we're planning two more sermons in Romans 11. And then we're going to take a break from Romans for a while. Today we are in verses 23 through 32. Romans 11, 23 through 32. Next week, we will do verses 33 through 36. So, how did we get to verse 23 in Romans 11? If you look back at verse 1, we see that in, in what comes before in chapter 10, the majority of the Jewish people in Paul's day rejected Jesus. And the question is asked, is God finished with those Jews? And some people would even say, is God finished with those stinking Jews? They missed their Messiah. How dare they? And we see Paul condemning that attitude. And Paul gives the answer to the question, is God done with the Jews forever? And he says, no. A big, strong no. We get to verse 11, and there's a similar and very connected question. They stumbled over the Messiah. Instead of embracing him, they tripped and they fell. And they did not receive the blessing, did they stumble so that they would fall? Was it God's purpose to destroy them because of their rejection of Christ? And Paul says, no, that was not God's purpose to destroy them or to ruin them. But his purpose was that he, they would stumble and then God was going to work and focus in drawing the nations, the other nations, to himself. See, God doesn't just really, really like one type of people and not like all the others. With all our differences and with all the different cultural places and, and, and racial differences and ethnic differences and language differences from all over the world, right? God loves every single one. And he has people. He has his elect in all of them. And so Paul tells in verse 11 and following, he says the Jews stumbled and now God's purpose in that is he's going to go after all those other different nations that he had not pursued before. And he goes on to say that's going to make the Jewish people jealous. And then we get to verse 13. Who is Paul writing to now? He's writing to the Gentiles. What follows in our passage today is not a message to the Jews. He's writing to non-Jewish people from other nations. And he goes on to share this illustration. We covered it last week. There's a cultivated olive tree. God broke some of the natural branches from that cultivated olive tree. God was tending that tree. And God broke some of those branches off. And there was a wild olive tree over there on the hill. And he went over there. The Bible doesn't say it was on the hill. But he went over there and he broke some branches off and he grafted that in to the tree of his people. Last week we also saw there was a major warning against arrogance. So, with that being said, we find ourselves in verse 23. I'm going to begin reading and I will read to verse 32. And even they... If they, that is the Jews, do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power 
to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they, still talking about the Jewish people, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. But just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This is the word of God. Please give yourself to it, and let's have a great discussion about it, and may the Lord bless all of it. All right. If you have ever wondered, like, about the storyline of the Bible, like, kind of how does the flow go from beginning to end, what's the big picture? Romans 11 is helpful in answering that question. If you've ever wondered... What's God's big, grand purposes in the world? Then Romans 11 is a fantastic chapter. I could not have told you that when we first started studying, when I first started preaching through this with y'all. But I can now. It's a big picture view. You can drive through Gates County. You can go, you know, pass from Virginia and go south on 32. Or you can come from Virginia and go... uh, uh, South on 13, or you can be coming from the beach and going to the western part of the state on 158. You can pass through Gates County and see a little bit here and a little bit there and kind of get an idea of what's going on right in front of you. Or you could fly over it very slowly in a small plane and get a really big picture of what the whole thing looks like from way far off. Well, Romans 11 is like that standing back above and looking at the entire thing. The entire story of the Bible, you know, minus creation in the fall. But, you know, everything after that, you know, the big stuff is here in Romans 11. Romans 11, it gives us a bird's eye view of what God is doing in the world. It gives us a bird's eye view of the purposes of God. And don't you know... God has purposes. He's not just doing things aimlessly and meaninglessly. He is a God of providence. He is a God of sovereignty. And He has a plan. Y'all, our God has it together. Amen? Amen. 
So he is a God of great purpose, and he reveals some of his larger purposes in Romans 11. So we get to verse 23. And we see here that the Jewish people who rejected Jesus 2,000 years ago, when he came to them and called them to himself, they're going to come. They will come to their Messiah. Paul says, if they don't continue in their unbelief, here in 2023, they're still in their unbelief. If they do not continue in that way, when they choose to believe, and yes, people do choose to believe, if they choose to believe, verse 23 says, they will graft them in again. Remember that olive tree? The olive tree is the people of God. When the Jews did not believe, when Jesus came the first time, he broke certain branches of that olive tree off. The unbelieving Jews, those branches were broken off. And here God says, here Paul says, if they believe, God's going to put them back in with his people. Amen? Amen. He has, look at verse 23, the power. You all, salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Salvation belongs to to our God, and aren't you glad? Because if it didn't, he couldn't give it to you, (laughs) right? If he did not, if it did not, if salvation did not belong to him, he could not give it to you. We would have to go somewhere else. But he and he alone has it. We can't find it anywhere else but in him. Verse 24, speaking to Gentiles, he's reasoning with them about the Jews. This whole passage, Paul is trying to get the Gentiles to have a right view of the Jewish people. You all, we need to have a right view of the Jewish people. So he says, if you Gentiles were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you were grafted into the cultivated olive tree that was being cultivated and tended and watched over by God, If that can happen contrary to nature, then doesn't it make sense that the branches that were broken off can be stuck back on the tree? It makes perfect sense. If God can do it with a wild, unruly crowd, certainly he can do it with a crowd that's a bit more tame. And then we move on to verses 25 through 27. I want to say this. In 10 years of pastoring, figuring out what verses 25 through 27 means might be the hardest thing I've ever tried to figure out in any scripture I've ever preached on. And before I share my, before I teach on it in just a moment, I just want to say, it's hard to know what some of this stuff means. I think I know what this means. I have a general idea what I know this means. And, you know, the basics of what 25, 26, and 27 mean are generally agreed upon within the Christian church. But the specifics of what it means, we got to be really, really careful. It's hard to figure out. So, with that being said, let's jump in. There's a warning about arrogance. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Lest you be wise in your own sight. Has anyone ever said that to you before? 
Have you ever said that to anyone before? As I shared last week, that's a real problem. That's a real issue. Man is sinful and pride and arrogance are at the core of our being. And for many, maybe not all, but certainly for many, pride and arrogance are something that we have to continually be on guard against. And Paul is talking to the Gentiles. And he's warning them about arrogance. He said this before. Look at verse 18. He says, you Gentiles do not be arrogant toward the Jews. He goes on to say, you're not the ones supporting the root of the olive tree, but the root actually supports you. What's more important, the branch that can easily be broken off or the root that sustains the entire tree? The Jews are the root and they support you, Paul tells them. And Paul goes on to say, Prior to our passage today, even though the Jewish branches were broken off so that you could be grafted in, God can and will break the Gentile branch back off if they don't continue in the faith. So if he broke the Jews off, I, I need to should have brought a stick. Should have brought lobbers two weeks ago. Should have brought a branch today. If God broke the branch when they didn't believe, He's a just God. He's going to do the same thing to you Gentiles if you don't believe. So stop being arrogant because you might end up just like the Jews. Your life ain't over yet. There's a lesson for us in this warning about arrogance. It is necessary to continue in the faith. If not, you will be cut off. I'll touch on this more later. But it is necessary to continue in the faith. And if we don't, we will be cut off. Church, God is calling us and empowering us to persevere until the end. So there's a warning about arrogance early on in 25. And he goes on and he says, I don't want y'all to be unaware of this mystery. It's important that you know this, Paul is saying to them. And he uses the word mystery. And whenever you see the word mystery in Paul's writing, Paul is referring to something that had been hidden, something that was in the mind and heart of God that God had not revealed, right? Okay? Loving authorities don't reveal everything to those under their authority, right? (laughs) You know, that's my life as a parent, right? You know, I choose the best time to let them in on stuff. God does the same with us. And there's a mystery, something that God had not previously revealed. And Paul wants to make sure the Gentiles know about it. He says, I don't want y'all to be unaware of this. I want you to know and believe and understand this. What's the mystery? Verse 25 says that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Did God harden all the Jews so that none of them believed? No. But it was a partial hardening. The Jews that were not hardened toward their Messiah believed in the Messiah. They were the remnant that Paul talked about earlier on in chapter 9. Paul was not hardened. He was awakened. Amen? Amen. And called and, and just powerfully transformed. Christ appeared to him while he was on a trip to kill and arrest the people of God. And God reached down and grabbed hold of them in a very dramatic fashion. Paul was the, the elect Jews that were not Hardened. He was of the other part. He was of the remnant that was written of back in verses, I think, 3, 4, 5, and 6. 
So a partial hardening has come on the Jewish people. For how long? Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Do you see that at the end of verse 25? Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Now, what does that mean? Anybody know? (laughs) Please tell me if you know. Okay. Fullness of the Gentiles. What does that mean? It's hard to know for sure. Some say, and I have a really, really great brother that um, I'm working with in the abolitionist movement to get some things done here in North Carolina. He says, and some others like him say, every single remaining Gentile will believe at this time. That's what the fullness of the Gentiles mean. I don't think that's it. I have some reasons for not believing that. Some people think that maybe it's a reference to every single Gentile that will believe. Every single elect Gentile is going to believe, and then the non-elect obviously are not going to believe because God's going to leave them in their sin. And then the people who believe that, they believe that the Jews are going to quickly come in after that. After all of the elect Gentiles are going to save, we're going to see this massive short-term harvest where the Jews come in. And then after that, evil will quickly engulf the world, and then Christ will come back immediately. I think that interpretation requires some speculation or addition to Scripture. I don't think Scripture is that clear. Here's what I think the fullness of the Gentiles mean. I think the fullness of the Gentiles means, I think it's a reference to that period of history when the church finishes the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? The Great Commission was some of the final words to Jesus, to his disciples, right before he ascended to the Father after his death and resurrection. So he died, he rose again. He was on the earth for about 40 days after that, and then he ascended up to heaven. Right before he ascended, he said this, and we call it the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do everything that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. He gave the command to his disciples, and I believe to the church also. It's extended to to the people of God today to disciple all the nations. People from every nation, every ethnic group, not just geopolitical boundaries that we have today. But in the Bible, nations had to do with cultural groups with a like, similar culture and identity or heritage. But the church is to go to all the nations. We are to play a role in unbelieving nations becoming disciples of Christ. I think the fullness of the Gentiles has to do with that period of history when we're done with that job. When the church finishes the job of making disciples of the nations, then when the gospel has nowhere else that it has to go for the first time, Then the Gentiles will come. I'm sorry, then the Jews will come. So church, we have work to do. You all know that. I say that often. After the nations come in, after the fullness of the Gentiles, then at some point, maybe quickly, maybe not, we've all been taught to believe that Christ is going to come back before we die. All right, I reject that wholeheartedly. Is it possible? Absolutely. 
But I don't think Scripture gives us any reason to believe that. Any reason. The Left Behind series, they want you to believe that. That is not what I see in the Scripture. I don't think... I mean, Jesus can come back anytime he wants, but we're, I don't think we're anywhere close to the fullness of the Gentiles come in. I can't say that for sure. Hear me say that. But one thing I can say for sure is I see no reason to believe that Jesus is going to come back in our generation. Absolutely no reason to believe that. And I can defend that more or share more about that another time. So after the fullness comes in, the Jews come in. And maybe quickly after that, maybe not quickly after that, I don't know. But after that, Christ is going to come back and put the remaining enemies under his feet with swift and eternal righteous judgment. All right. So verse 25, let's look at it all together with that in mind. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So those are my thoughts on verse 25. And he says all that to say that all Israel will be saved. You see that in verse 26? And in this way, all Israel will be saved. How are the Jews going to come to Jesus? In this way. How and when are the Jews going to come? After verse 25 is done. So, all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Some people think the word Israel in verse 25 just means all the elect. All the elect Jews, all the elect Gentiles. And they look at chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, where God talks about two different Israels. And they they try to take that meaning from chapter 9, 5 and 6 and say, look, he's just talking about spiritual Israel here, not ethnic Israel. I reject that interpretation. John Calvin and, and many other godly people held that interpretation, but I reject it. And here's why. Because all four times so far in this passage that the word Israel or Israelites have been used, it's talking about unbelieving Jews. So I don't think that all of a sudden Paul's going to be talking about Israel the way he was talking about them over two chapters ago. Paul has the same thought in mind throughout this entire chapter And he's referring to unbelieving Israel, to national ethnic Israel, to the people who are fighting terrorists right now today. And other Jewish people that are scattered around the world. So some people think all Israel being saved means every single Jewish person is going to believe. That might be true. I I think it probably means that the nation as a whole, meaning the majority... will come. It's hard to say for sure. It's really hard to say for sure. We get into verse, the rest of 26 and we and 27, and we see that Israel's salvation has already been spoken of in the Bible prior to Romans 11. He quotes Isaiah 59. Isaiah lived almost 800 years before Paul wrote this. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, with God inside of him, looks back at the Old Testament Scriptures and he says, I want to tell y'all what this means. Look at Isaiah 59 with me, Paul is saying. He says, the, it is written, verse 26, the deliverer will come from Zion. That's Jesus. That is Jesus. The deliverer will come from Zion. What's he going to do? 
He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Who's Jacob? Jacob was the man that God renamed Israel. Jacob was the man who wrestled with God. Jacob was the man who who was chosen by God to bring the 12 tribes of Israel into the world. And And now when you see the word Jacob in the Scripture, it has to do with his descendants. So what's the deliverer going to do? He's going to remove sin from the Jewish people. And he announces in verse 27, I've got a covenant with them. Here's my promise. I'm going to take away their sins. I'm going to take away their sins. Paul is saying that that part of Isaiah 59 is a reference to the Jews coming in prior to the return of Christ. Some people think that this will take place during a seven-year tribulation. There's no indication of that in the text at all. And if you go back and read all of Isaiah 59, and you look at how Isaiah 59 is quoted in other parts of the New Testament, you really got to do some interpretive gymnastics to say that this happens in the middle of a seven-year tribulation. So... I want to make a cautionary statement, and I want to be guilty not to do what I'm warning against. (laughs) I want to be careful not to be guilty of doing what I'm warning against. Did that come out right that time? Okay. Beware of those writers and preachers who spend loads of time trying to create an entire end-time system out of Romans 11. Paul did not write this stuff because he wanted to give a lecture about the second coming. Paul has two reasons for writing what he's written in chapter 11. He wants to reveal the plan and purpose of God for the Jewish people that don't believe. He wants to say God's not done with this. That's reason number one he's written Romans 11. It's not because he wants for us to make a timeline about how things are going to pan out. And the second reason is he wants to warn the Gentiles against arrogance. Those are the two reasons Romans 11 is here. So just be careful if people try to take Romans 11 and make this giant system out of it. There's just not that much information in it. There's some, no doubt, but that is not Paul's purpose. So be careful. All right. So on to verse 28 and 29, right now and back then. All right. Verse 28, Paul wants you to think about the Jewish people right now. And he wants you to think about the Jewish people way back then. What's he say about them right now? As regards the gospel, as regards the good news of King Jesus, The Jews are enemies of that gospel. The Jews hate the gospel of Jesus Christ. We saw this in the book of Acts last year. Paul was being run out of town by the Jews as he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 28, it says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. What does that mean? Remember, he's talking to Gentiles. They're enemies for the sake of the Gentiles because when they rejected the gospel... God went to the Gentiles and started bringing them in. So because of the Jews' disobedience, the Gentiles now get to come in. Look at the second part of verse 28. He's saying to them, don't forget your history. Don't forget where you came from. God was doing things in this world way before you got here. Don't be arrogant of your history. Y'all, history is important. We've got to get it right. He says, as regards election, God's sovereign, unconditional choice of his people, 
They, the Jews, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he didn't make to anyone else. And because of that, God has a special love for those Jews. Amen? Amen. We get to verses 30 and 31, and we see this sweet and incredible mercy of God. The sweet and incredible mercy of God. For just as you, talking to Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient. For what purpose? In order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. See, the Gentiles were the wild, uncultivated olive tree doing their own thing. The Jews rejected God. And from the Jews' disobedience, mercy flowed to the wild, uncultivated olive tree. So, if mercy can flow to one people because of another people's disobedience, then doesn't it make sense that mercy can flow back to the Jews from the mercy shown to the Gentiles? Think about it. The Jews were disobedient. God poured out mercy on the other group. The Gentiles received the mercy. Now that mercy can flow back to the Jews who didn't want to have anything to do with it the first time. Do you see the logic? Do you see the order? Commentator Matthew Henry, one of perhaps the best commentator of all time, he says this, and I'm going to read it slow and I'm going to read it twice. If the putting out of their candle was the lighting of yours. By that power of God, which brings good out of evil. Amen. God brings good out of evil. By that power of God, which brings good out of evil, much more shall the continued light of your candle, when God's time shall come, be a means of lighting theirs again. That's beautiful. I'm going to read it again. You know, just he wrote it 400 years ago. It's kind of hard to follow. Amen. <laughs> if the putting out of their candle was the lighting of yours, by that power of God which brings good out of evil, much more shall the continued light of your candle, that's us today, when God's time shall come, be a means of lighting theirs again. Y'all, God wants his people. He wants the Jews. So, I ask this question. Why would God do it like this? God's kind of ping-ponging back and forth. Amen? Amen. Okay, I've been asking myself this for weeks. Ping-pong, back, you know, hitting the ball back, one group, one group, one group. Why, what is God's reason? And my thoughts prior to this week where, you know what, that's just one of those things that we can't touch because God hasn't told us. And I was, I was kind of preparing to share that with you all today. But then I, I read this. Uh, a particular commentator that I really like pointed this out. But he says this. He, well, this isn't a quote, but I'm just going to read my notes here. God has planned history, and particularly salvation history, in such a way that he would receive the maximum glory. 
all glory and honor belongs to him. Next week, we're going to see from you and through you and to you are all things. So you be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's verse 36 of Romans 11. So God has planned salvation history in such a way that he would receive the maximum glory. So that it would be evident to all that salvation is of the Lord. The revisiting of mercy upon Israel after such an interval serves to remind Israel that God's saving favor is truly mercy. Not something they deserve because of their ethnic heritage. Nice. So so let's, let's go down that road a little bit. The, when Jesus came the first time, the Jews didn't receive him because they thought they were all that in a bag of chips. We've got the law and we're great people. We don't need a savior. And they blew it. They did need a savior. They were wrong. So no one can undo that. No one can deny that. That is so clear when you look at the records of history. Well, the Jews still haven't believed in 2,000 years, but yet white guys and black people and folks from here and folks from there and folks from here and folks from there and folks that speak this language and that language, we're all getting in on the promises of God and the mercy of God. We can't brag that God chose us because we were so great because we weren't, right? (laughs) We weren't looking for God. He was looking for us. And now we're coming in, and at some point... God will awaken the Jews, and when he awakens them, they're going to be like, oh my, we were wrong the first time. We had it all wrong. God, we are unworthy people. We deserve to be damned. We deserve your just judgment. God, we have nothing good of our own, no merit, nothing. And the Jews will realize that all of salvation has nothing to do with us earning it or being obedient, but that it has to do everything with God's unconditional mercy. So why did God ping pong it back and forth throughout history and and, and even the future that hasn't happened yet? I think Tom Schreiner says it well. He planned salvation history in such a way that he would receive the maximum glory because both the Jews and Gentiles realized I wasn't looking for this and didn't know I needed it. Because if we know that we don't need it, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. If we realize that we don't deserve it, that's what I'm trying to say. If we realize we don't deserve it, but we get it anyway, we're going to be more thankful to God. It's not going to be like, yeah, God saved me and I saved me too. We worked together to make this happen. No, I I did everything to not be saved. I, I, I should have been locked up. I should have been strapped to the chair, turned that switch on, let me go. Boom, I'm gone. You, you know, we, when we realize our condemnation, man, then we look at our Savior, wow, what glory our Savior has, amen? amen? And at the end of history, every elect person, Jew and Gentile alike, is going to say, salvation belongs to the Lord, I get no glory for my own. What a beautiful story. It's incredible. So let's look at verse 32. And verse 32 is very much a summary statement of everything in 9 through 11. Next week's going to be the same way, but I think verse 32 really stands on its own. It says, God has consigned all to disobedience. The word consigned here means imprisoned. Like he locked you up. 
Okay? God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. You all, this is not teaching a universal salvation where everyone's going to get saved. Every individual. But he's saying that all nations will be saved. All nations disobeyed and all nations will receive mercy. Everyone from all nations disobeyed and some from all nations will receive mercy. It doesn't say some here, but I'm bringing that in from other passages, other verses all over the book of Romans and the rest of the Bible. So this is not teaching universalism that, hey, eventually God's going to save everyone. There's nothing about purgatory in here. Purgatory is a doctrine of the devil from hell. There's no truth to it at all. But Paul is saying to us in verse 32 that in God's mysterious sovereign purposes, all the nations were shackled by sin. But now and in the future, in God's sovereign timing, some or many from all nations will receive mercy. So, how does this transform your life and my life? How does this transform us as a church? How do we obey this passage? I don't think there was a single command in this passage. But what, how should this change how we live our life? First off, don't be arrogant. Don't forget where you came from. Every time you see a lost, dysfunctional person, just remember how lost you were. And remember, you're still kind of dysfunctional sometimes. Amen. Remember, don't be arrogant. Remember that the race isn't over yet. And the Bible says that only he who endures to the end will be saved. Y'all, we've got to run the race and we've got to finish it. Let's do it. Amen? Amen. Secondly, we should show mercy to others as God has shown mercy to us. Let us be a merciful people. Let us not be a people who are easily offended or holds on to offense. Let us not be controlled by bitterness or by trauma from the past. But let us rise up over bitterness and the bad things that have been done to us by others. Let us rise up. Let us look at God's mercy on us and let us pour that same mercy out on others. Next. We need to pray that the Gentiles would come in so that the Jews would be saved. Now what's that look like? It means praying that the Great Commission is finished. That the people of God throughout the earth were scattered all over the place, right? There's pockets here and pockets there, lots of pockets, where there's nations that aren't discipled yet. We need to pray that the church would go to neighboring nations and disciple them. Tim Keller points out another thing. The gospel, we need to realize that the gospel came to us Gentiles because Israel rejected it. Amen? Amen. If God can reach us with his mercy through their disobedience, then he can certainly reach them with his mercy through the mercy that I have. Remember I told you a few minutes ago, the mercy flows from us to them. So we should ask, what part 
can we play in making sure that that mercy gets where it needs to go? What part can we play in God's wonderful, sovereign purposes for his ancient people? Lastly and finally, let's do our part to make sure the gospel gets to all the nations so that the Jews will come. I wasn't planning to say this, but you know, from your tithes and giving, your tithes and offering, we support a number of missionaries that work in other places. One of them is a man named McLean Hawthorne. I'm guessing he's early 70s, but I don't know that for sure. He, has, he and his wife, well, he has stayed in our home before. We've had a number of occasions where they've been in town. He's preached here once before um, since I've been here. But I met him when I was 17 years old when Faith Outreach met at the other building on Medical Center Road. Our church has been sponsoring him for that long. He, he's like this academic genius who is just so in love with Jesus. And he's been that way for decades. And we send him, I don't even remember what it is, 50 bucks a month or something like that. It's just a scrat and just a small dent of what he needs. But this man goes back and forth to Malaysia in Singapore, his home is, he's got a home in Florida. Sometimes he's in Sri Lanka. He's even been in Western Europe over the last few years. And he teaches Bible and theology to people from the hardest to reach places in North Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. See, there's not a Bible college, you know, every hundred miles in that part of the world. But he's training them in the ways of the Lord so that his students can disciple the nations. So, y'all, we're a part of that because you give faithfully. We're able to send some out. It's one tiny little thing. I want to be able to do more, more than that. And I believe we will one day. I want to do a lot more than that. I want to see the nations come. I want to see the Jews come. I want to see all nations follow Christ. I want to see our nation follow Christ. And then you know what? I want to hear that trumpet sound, and I want to see my king coming back on clouds. I I want to go up in the air to meet him as he's coming down, and I want to rejoice as we come back to a new heavens and a new earth where we worship him and live our lives here for all eternity in perfect, sinless joy. Hallelujah. That's good news, ain't it, church? That is good news. Let us be faithful and bring that day to pass. Let's pray.